So the Beatitudes, those uh, sayings in the Bible which begin with the words, blessed are, are among the most famous uh, words ever spoken, coming from the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, given by the most famous preacher who ever lived. Uh, As the name indicates, Jesus spoke those words on the side of one of the small mountains by the Lake of Galilee near the town of Capernaum. And an interesting observation has been made by people who know these kinds of things based on the topography of that area. Though we don't know the precise location where Jesus was standing when he gave this message, we know that the breeze that day must have been coming from Jesus' back and blowing toward the lake. The place is like a giant bow, and so the wind would come and then would move his words towards the people, and a firm voice could be heard by the thousands who were present there that day. Another time, he sat in a boat on the lake, and he taught, and we said, we named for the same reason that the wind was blowing off the lake and toward the mountain, and again, the thousands who were there could hear him clearly. The Beatitudes is the way most people refer to that particular section of Jesus' message that day. It was applied by some scholar or teacher at some point in the church's history. And that word, Beatitude, is a derivative of the Latin, and it means happy or joyful. And that's not a bad title for that section. It it highlights the blessed state of the believer and the blessings which flow from such actions. But if they had asked me, and they didn't, but if they had asked me, I would have entitled this section, The Description. Jesus is describing his people here in the Beatitudes. Uh, He's telling us what we look like, or at least what we should like and look like, and what we will indeed look like when he has finished with us. And this applies to each and every believer. It's not about different groups within the church. It's not that some Christians are merciful and others are peacemakers and still others are meek. I mean, you may find some of these things easier to do than others, though no one does any of them perfectly. But everything that Jesus says here applies to you. Even the things you find hard or maybe even impossible, it applies to you if you're a believer. I have to tell you, it's been about 10 years, hard for me to imagine, but it's been about 10 years since I spoke uh, about the description, the Beatitudes here at Y Bible Church. Maybe it's time we need to revisit them, but not today. (laughs) Today we're going to look at those few verses which follow the Beatitudes. In your Bible, you'll see then that they're still in the same section. And and while Jesus is still describing us, the verses don't begin with blessed are. Jesus has moved on. And his focus now is on just why as Christians we matter. He tells us what we ought to look like, what he is going to make us be. And now he tells us why we matter. He tells us what a difference that we make on a large scale. He tells us, and everyone else too, how important we are 
and how we are to impact the world that we live in. His people and his church are essential. If we take Jesus at his word, and we do, we, we must believe that somehow we, as believers, are vital to human existence. So I want to ask you to join me once again, uh, this time in the book of Matthew, as we kind of continue our study uh, on the church. Where we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And of course, the guys in the cave will have this up on the screen on either side of me. And this passage we're looking at today, there are three things that we learn here about the importance of God's people and his church. And we're going to spend uh, some time talking about each of them. And and the first thing we see, the first thing that Jesus says here has become a part of our language. It's it's one of our sayings. It's not as common as it once was, but you still can hear people say it even today, though many don't know what its origins are. Beginning of verse 13, Jesus said, and we read these words, you are the salt of the earth. That saying, as it's used commonly in our world today, is a compliment. And if it's said about you, it means something like you are a person of great worth and reliability. And while you may indeed be a person of great worth and reliability, I think you are, uh, Jesus had something else in mind when he said what he said. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. But first I have to deal with the next sentence So some of you aren't going to be distracted by it. Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now some of you are wondering right now if this means you can lose your salvation. And if you had nothing else to go by, if you had no other passage than this, you might well wonder that. But the preponderance of evidence in the Bible is uh, an assurance that once God has us, he doesn't let us go. What this does tell us is that we can neglect who we are and become ineffective. It's It's a kind of a warning. You and I are meant to make a difference We're meant to have a wonderful, positive impact on our world, but we can become useless if we don't live out our faith. For the believer, I hope you agree with this, but for a believer, that would be a terrible thing. Now, there's one more thing about this that I I need to talk about really briefly because some of you, by nature, are curious, and you're wondering how salt can lose its saltiness, right? And, and if you had just table salt, if it lost its saltiness, you've lost everything there. But the salt they used in that day was mined out of the earth, and it was a mineral that had a sodium chloride content in it. And it was possible that that salt could leach out of it. So it looked the same, but all the saltiness was no longer there. So they would use it to preserve food and all the things they would. They'd use it to flavor food, Right. But, but when that salt was gone, it wasn't good for anything, and so they would throw it out, and you couldn't throw it in a field. You ended up throwing it on the pathways where people walked. And that's what Jesus is warning us about, that if we neglect who we are, 
we might find ourselves to be useless like salt that's no longer salty. That's okay. Now that we've got that out of the way, what did Jesus mean when he called us the salt of the earth? Well, I, I thought about this, right? I mean, that's my job is to think about these things. And, and, uh, and I came up with five things that we can say about salt in general, right? So salt preserves. And in those days before refrigeration, right, meat and fish were salted to keep them from going bad. My father grew up in a family which salted their meat, and he helped them do it. He he couldn't tell you how to do it now, but he helped them. He knew exactly how to do it then. And then we can also say that salt makes one thirsty. That's uh, rather obvious, I think. And I will testify to you that salt think, makes things taste better. It releases the natural flavor of food. It enhances those flavors, and I think it tastes good all by itself. One thing we may not think of uh, is that salt is valuable. It was part, do you know this? It was part of the Roman soldier's pay. It came to him in salt. And it's valuable even though it's very common. And finally, salt is necessary for life. Without salt, we can't live. It's a vital electrolyte that we need. I have to tell you, I don't want to stretch Jesus' illustration beyond what he intended, but... But he was the one who used the idea of salt. And he hasn't put any kind of limit on it that I can see. And it, the context doesn't limit it either. So what if we try to apply those five things to the individual Christians and to the church, uh, incidentally, and, and see if they might just fit? So we begin with this. The presence of Christians acts as a preservative for whatever good there is in culture and the people around them. Now, you know, this really is the most common interpretation you'll find about this statement. It seems that everybody agrees with it, and I do too. Our society, our culture, our world is heading straight for the abyss. As Christians who put the brake on that runaway vehicle, uh, we keep the good things alive when they're dying in so many other places. It's the Christian who insists on the sanctity of human life, the holiness and the absolute uniqueness of human life. We fight for it at birth and before birth and in sickness and when it comes to the elderly. In a world that's gone off the rails, which has twisted the meaning of marriage and which will come to improve eventually any combination of anything is marriage, it's the Christian who stands for the truth and which keeps what sanity there is in our culture. And in this sexually depraved generation, reeling from scandal after scandal, the fruit of their so-called morality, it's been the Christian who has stood for God's design, calling people either to abstinence or to faithfulness in marriage, to a lifelong partner, and nothing else, nothing in between. In past generations... And in other parts of our world where people live that way, we can see the positive impact it had, that kind of lifestyle was had. Sometimes, I know, sometimes we're like a a voice calling in the wilderness, but the call matters. It's essential. 
And without it, our culture would be utterly depraved. A long, long time ago, before I even knew Anne, there was this girl I knew. She worked at the local uh, Wawa, and I got to know her going in. She was attractive, but I had no real interest in her. Uh, but I got to know her a little bit. And one day I stopped there. It was late at night. She was out front sweeping the, the sidewalk off, and she told me about her new boyfriend and that she was going to move in with him. And, and I said to her, I said, you really think that's a good idea? Do you know how that effect will affect you and your relationship to him, especially if you got ma- get married? And we talked for a while, and I kind of told her what the statistics were. And she, she said, thank you. It was such a relief to her for someone else to say kind of what she was feeling. I have to tell you the truth, it didn't keep her from doing it. Her boyfriend was so insistent and all of her friends around pushed so hard that she did move in with him. But it, that's the voice. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to stand for the things that are right and it matters. The presence of the people of God and of the church act as a preservative to keep the good things alive in a dying world. Look at those places in our world. Look at them. Places where there aren't many churches and the Christian influence is small and suppressed. Look at how they treat women. Look at how they treat gays and lesbians. Look at how they treat people of different faith. In fact, look at how they treat anyone that's not exactly like them. And you'll get some sense of how important the church is. Look at those places where the church once stood strong, but is losing its influence, where people are turning their back on God. And see what's happening to their culture, how it devalues people, making them kind of a commodity or an economic unit. Look at Europe and see the ugly rise of anti-Semitism again, as though we learned nothing. The presence of the church matters to the good things in this world. And then what Christians do, besides preserving it, the goodness is here, what we do is we make people thirsty. Well, what could that mean? Am I stretching it too far to remind you that Jesus is the living water? When we live as we ought to, people want what we have. How many times have you heard someone say, uh, when they've gotten to know a believer, maybe someone's even said it to you, I want what you have. So you're the salt. You made them thirsty for the living water. The, the man who led me to Jesus Christ, uh, George was his name, he came in to see me every night that I worked at the 7-Eleven, the midnight shift, for about two weeks. He told me later on that he came and he talked, and he always left. He always left me thirsty. Every time. So I'd want more the next time he came back. Maybe there's wisdom in that. I kind of think there is. Maybe sometimes we can pour on too much salt if we're not sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. But most of the time, however, our problem is we may not say enough. But I don't want you to miss the point here. 
It's not just what you say, but the way that you live, which makes people thirst for the living water. How about this one? Maybe it's too much of a stretch, (laughs) but can Christians add flavor to everyday things in life? (laughs) Can, Can we help people to see the good of those things which they might otherwise take for granted? Maybe because we give thanks for them. Do you ever think that someone in a restaurant, when you bow your head and give thanks for the meal, looks at you and sees that? Some of them look and they're offended because you have the gall to pray in public. But do you ever think they think, yeah, I ought to be thankful. Look at all that I have. Can we help people, figuratively speaking, to swallow the things that come their way? Bad things happen to people. Do Christians, by their example, help people to deal with them? Job says, who can eat the white of an egg without salt? And we're the salt. We help it go down. Maybe your neighbor is going through a hard time and you're there and maybe you don't say anything at all, but you remind him nonetheless or her nonetheless of the other good things in life and you help them get through it. In those times we stand with them, in the loss of a job or a loved one, in times of hardship or sadness, and it matters, doesn't it? No, we don't take away the pain. (laughs) People don't always see the good things in their life just because we're there. Even Jesus didn't get through to everyone. But can't we reach some just by living out the faith? Yes, we can. That's what the Bible teaches. This next one is one I take as a kind of certainty, though I'm not going to spend any time on it. And, And we may never have seen the connection before, but Christians are valuable, I mean, to God, to other believers, but also to the unknowing world. And we're valuable even though we're quite common, like salt. <laughs> and what makes us really valuable to the world around us is that Christians are necessary for life. That's the final thing that we mentioned when we began this verse. When I, when I learned uh, uh, the value of salt, uh, really learned of it uh, first, I was 19 years old. I dropped out of college, and I had gotten a job at sea working on the oil tankers. And I worked in the engine room. And I cannot tell you how hot it was there. It was like being in a sauna, but you couldn't just sit down. You had to work, and it was awful. And for three days, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was a week, I could hardly move. I'd go into that engine room, and the heat sapped my strength. I walked like I was a very old man, plodding and putting one foot in front of the other. I looked for any reason I could find to get out of that engine room and get out of the heat. I'd walk by a door leading out of that engine room, and I would open it, and I would stick my head out just to feel some cool air. And I looked like I was an attachment to the water fountain. Things just kept getting worse. And one day I said to another one of the guys there, I said, I'm dying down here. I don't know if I can do this job. In fact, I'm not doing this job. I'm just showing up. And he said to me, are you taking the salt tablets? 
I didn't even know there were salt tablets so that I should take them. But there they were, above the water fountain, and how could I have missed them as much time as I spent there? But I did. And there was this container full of salt, compressed salt tablets, and the instructions said, take two or three as needed. And I did. And compared to the way I had been feeling, I thought I was Superman when I took that salt. I I mean, it was still hot, but I was alive, and I could do my job. Christians are like that. We're necessary for life. And what I mean is real life, not just existence, but God's life, which is eternal. We're carriers of life for our world. We have the gospel. We bring just not existence, but the abundant life of Christ with us. You and I, by our presence, by the way we live our lives, by the things we say matter to those around us. We are essential to life. And God's wisdom has made it so. He uses people, men, women, and children to reach other people with the truth, which is essential for life. You know, it's not to angels that God has entrusted the gospel, though they're smarter than we are and more powerful and they are without sin and their very presence gets attention. But that's not their job. It's ours. Maybe because we know from the inside what it's like to be a sinner saved by grace. We've received mercy and we know how to give it. Grace has been given to us who didn't deserve it. And yet through us unworthy though we are, God pours out his grace to others. We are Christians And we're essential for life. We're valuable, though we're as common as salt. And we make life palatable and we make the thirsty people looking for the water of life. And we preserve the goodness which is yet in our world. You and I matter. And if that weren't enough, In verse 14, the first part, Jesus tells us even more about ourselves and how we matter. Let me read it to you. You are the light of the world. And we're going to talk more about what that means, uh, what it means to be the light of the world. But there are a few things I want to say before we go any further. And the first is, as the next part of the verse tells us, that all we have said about the individual Christian applies to the church as well. So we read uh, in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. A town is not just one person or one family, but a group of believers. So all that we've said and all we're going to say about the believers applies to the church also. And then, too, we can't be hidden. People will see us. They're meant to. It's God's design. We cannot be hidden any more than you can hide a city on a hill. We are the light of the world, just as we were the salt of the earth. The influence of the Christian and of the church matters to the whole world. That's why the church needs to be everywhere. And finally, Jesus called himself the light of the world, And here he applies it to us. You and I, since Jesus isn't walking the earth now, 
We're the light of the world. We stand in his place. So having said that, there are a number of things we can say about light, just like we did about salt. They're going to be briefer here, uh, both because of the restraints of time, but also because you better understand how we look at these things. We know, what do we know about light? Well, we can say it drives out the darkness. You come home at nighttime, and it's late, and there's no stars. Maybe it's cloudy, and the moon isn't shining. The porch light's off, no lights on in the house. You fumble for your key. You unlock the door, and then you turn on the light. <laughs> Where did the darkness go? <laughs> it's gone. The light drives out the darkness. The difference is in the spiritual realm, we see the light as it's dispelling the darkness. Now, as children of light, we see the light as it moves. Sometimes it looks like the darkness is winning, but it's not. The Bible puts it this way, the light is shining and the darkness is passing away. Light drives out darkness. And then, too, the darkness in our world cannot extinguish the smallest of lights. Darkness cannot do anything to the light. Darkness is the absence of the light. It has no power over the light itself. Yes, a believer can be persecuted. He can be locked away. She can be locked away. He or she can even be killed. But in death, even in death, they speak. The Bible tells us that righteous Cain, the first murder victim, still speaks today. My grandmother, long gone now, still speaks in my heart, in the hearts of my cousins and my brother my family, and she speaks to you through me. Darkness will never overcome the light. Light's a metaphor for understanding. It's light that allows us to see. Uh, this one explains itself, I know. Friday, <laughs> I was up in Pennsylvania again working on one of my father's houses, and my brother and I were trying to figure out why a porch light wasn't working. He had me pull out my cell phone and turn on that little light on there so we could see the wiring in the junction box. We needed the light to see to try to understand what was happening. You see, we help those around us to understand the world that they live in and their greatest need for Christ. How would they know if it wasn't for us? How would they know if we don't tell them? And then we too might ask this question, is it necessary for life? And the answer, of course, is yes. Without light from the sun, life wouldn't exist. Now, a person can be blind, but he or she still benefits from the light which shines upon this world. Without light, we'd be lost. Without the believer here, there'd be no hope for the unbeliever. The purpose of the light is to shine. Verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. That's what we do. We shine. And we shine indiscriminately on all. People see... We can't hide. 
They will see us. They will know how we live. So we better take care of what they see. And God does intend our light to shine and to shine on everybody. And if we shine on all, if we shine at all, then we will shine on all. We can't help it. It's what light does. It's what God intended. So we matter. We matter to the whole world. We're the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And from that, this passage tells us, finally, that we bring glory to God. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, you know, guys, don't you, that you and I, as we walk with God in this world, um, though we fall and fail and sin and we get back up again and we confess and we repent and then we keep going and by that we are bringing glory to God. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what he's getting at. What he is saying is something different. He is telling us that when our light shines before others, they, the un believers will bring glory to God. That is, they may. It's not a guarantee, but they can because we shine. They may bring glory to God. And when that happens, it happens when they put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. There are lots of other good things happening. Square dances and chili cook-off and chances to worship God. But we have a mission. We have a job. We're to reach the lost. And you matter. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You matter. You make a difference. And it's not just in this world and for our time, but you make a difference in the life to come and for all eternity. And through you, other people bring glory to God when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that, that's a reason to live. That, That's what we're called to. By his grace. Can I pray, please? Father, I'm, it, it really is awesome to hear this description of, of who we are in the Beatitudes and what it means to the world that we live in. And it's also quite humbling. We realize, Lord, that we can't do it by ourselves. And drop the ball every time you turn around. We realize we need you. And so, Father, please, help us to understand what you've called us to. Help us to decide we want to we wanna live up to that. We wanna we wanna be all of that and more. And help us, Lord, to turn to you. Find the strength that we need to do that very thing.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.